thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. This week, it weighs only a quarter of a kilogram, but it moves a weight of blood equivalent to two aircraft carriers over its lifetime. This miraculous machine is, of course, your heart. And in this hour, we're taking a closer look at how it works and how to keep it healthy. We'll also be talking to the doctors who prepare astronauts for orbit and look after fighter pilots and professional athletes. Plus... And we have the image on the screen here. Oh, wow. That's literally my heart. Yeah. I get a glimpse of my own heart in action and try my hand at some of the techniques that heart doctors use to unclog blocked arteries. I'm Chris Smith, he's Tom Crawford, and this is The Naked Scientist. And to get in touch with the programme, as always, chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. The reason we're talking about hearts is that last week we went along to the British Cardiovascular Society, or BCS, conference in Manchester. It's supported by the British Heart Foundation, who are one of the world's largest heart charities. They spend more than £100 million each year on heart research. This year, the theme of the conference was what happens to the heart under extreme conditions. And later, we'll hear how crocodiles can stay submerged for hours at a time. But first, it's off to the sports arena. Tom spoke to St George's University of London heart specialist Sanjay Sharma. Yes, I've got a very exciting job. I look after the hearts of um, football players, tennis players and most individuals involved with the English Institute of Sport. Clearly these people push themselves to their limits on a regular basis and exercise probably 10 to 15 times more than the current recommendations and by doing so they do develop a constellation of changes within the heart that we sometimes call the athlete's heart. Now specifically this involves a 10 to 20% increase in the thickness of the heart muscle and around a 10% increase in the cavities of the heart. The heart uh, relaxes much much more briskly than a normal heart and contracts more avidly than a normal heart during exercise. And these people, because their hearts are very, very big, they have quite a slow heart rate at rest because the heart doesn't have to do very much to pump five litres of blood around the body. I'm glad that's true because I've heard that quite a bit and I've always wondered whether or not it's, it's like a myth. But as an athlete, you do generally have a, a bigger, more powerful heart. Oh, yes, you have to. If you think about the fact that whilst we're sitting down here, uh, we are pumping five litres of blood around the body. Now, when someone exercises, that goes up to between 25 to 30 litres of blood around the body. Now, that's okay if you're running for a bus uh, and it's a short dash that's going to take 20 or 30 seconds. But when you're actually running for two or three hours and you've got to maintain that type of cardiac output, the only way you can do that is with the heart growing in size. 
So in that sense, the heart really is like any other muscle in your body. By training a particular muscle, it, it grows larger and the heart is no different. Absolutely. So people who train intensively at least four hours a week develop some of the changes I've just been talking about. And if they stop training, uh, things go back to normal. The extreme physical demands that sport professionals place upon themselves can have drastic consequences if their heart isn't working properly, though. There have been a number of recent examples of young athletes and footballers suffering from sudden death as a result of an underlying heart problem. Sadly, these can remain undiagnosed, often until it's too late. Dr Amanda Varnova is a cardiologist at Hammersmith Hospital in London. So about one in 300 of the population will harbour an inherited cardiac condition or a so-called sudden death uh, syndrome. These can be structural problems of the heart where the heart muscle thickens or the heart enlarges or electrical problems of the heart where the heart's structurally normal and the electricity becomes abnormal under certain conditions, particularly under sports and exercise. That's quite high, one Mm. in 300. Mm. Well, uh, many of these conditions an individual can live with until they're well into their 90s and not even discover it, nor indeed get significant symptoms but certain individuals will be at risk uh, with or without exercise uh, higher risk individuals and as a cardiologist we see individuals that we make this diagnosis in and assess whether they're at high risk or not and counsel them and treat them appropriately however an individual who harbours one of these conditions will increase their risk of sudden death by up to three or fourfold by competitive sports and that's the issue that we're dealing with here. Do they come and see you or is there a sort of framework for people who are sports professionals because there is that one in 300 risk? Are they referred to you just for screening? So individuals come through various uh, mechanisms. One, of course, is if they have symptoms. The second is if they have family history. Certain sports disciplines screen their uh, sportsmen, um, particularly in football, where the FA, for instance, have been leaders in this field, perhaps because they do attract more money and therefore have the resources to offer it. But they certainly are the standard bearers for screening. Uh, And by doing a questionnaire, looking at family history and symptoms, by doing an ECG and echo, we're able to tease out those football footballers who harbour one of these conditions. Now you made an interesting point there because you said sports men and football has been very much something that men have participated in for a really long time. Is there very much data on sports women? There is data. Reassuringly, as a woman, we have a far less chance of sudden death, even with one of these conditions. So overall, perhaps the risk of sudden death in a female athlete is perhaps up to 10 times less than it is for a male athlete. It's markedly reduced. You know why? I think that men adapt uh, to exercise in different ways, both structurally and electrically. There are certain groups of men and certain ethnicities that for various genetic reasons will be at greater risk with a given condition. It is also the case that the sudden death that occurs in females is generally perhaps for the electrical problems, less the structural problems. So there are different conditions that affect athletes, male or female, differently and their risk accordingly. What about ethnicity? as well because what we're also seeing is you know when you go to the olympics people often say um that this is in fact a trial of a person's genetics really isn't it? it's how how genetically they're set up because you always see stereotypically the ethiopians can't be beaten on the marathon they've got the perfect sort of genetic and and, and evolutionary history for that they're not terribly good at swimming on the other hand so there, there's certainly a, a strong genetic element so to what extent does ethnicity also put you at risk of these disorders well, ethnicity plays a huge role in both the way that the heart adapts in a normal physiological way to the exercise 
But also, according to ethnicity, your risks will change. So black athletes, unfortunately, have up to a five-fold greater risk of sudden death due to these concealed conditions than their, their white peers. And again, the, the exact reason for that is unknown. Genetic variabilities and risk, genetic risk markers are probably to play. Amanda Varnava and before her Sanjay Sharma. And we'll hear more from Sanjay later in the show when we look at the benefits that modest exercise can bring. Now, as Amanda just mentioned, people will be referred to her to check that their heart is working properly. And one of the tools available to doctors to see the heart in action is the echocardiogram. This uses ultrasound waves to image the heart as it beats so the cardiologist can tell whether it's contracting correctly and that the heart muscle is a healthy shape. I volunteered to be a guinea pig. Hi, I'm Claire Ward-Jones. I work for Philips Healthcare and my role is a cardiac ultrasound application specialist. That means I come into hospitals and train people how to use our products. We've got a machine that we call the Epic and that is the premium uh, ultrasound machine for cardiology. So we can do a 2D scan on you. We can also do 3D images so we can get a 3D model of the heart. Just from my point of view, looking at the machine, it kind of looks like I'm about to go in for a baby scan. So is it the, the, the same kind of thing? Correct. So it's the same machine and with just a different software and different transducers that we'd use on the machine, but they look identical. And when you say transducer, is that sort of like the, the bit that you're rubbing around on me? Yeah, so the echo probe or the transducer. So the bit we put jelly on and we put on your chest. And, and what sort of signal is it that's, that's sent out from this probe? So they're ultrasound beams. So the ultrasound beams are sent out from the transducer and they will bounce back when they hit structures within the body. So depending on the structures they hit, they come back at different times, and that's what makes up the image on the screen, so when they're received back into the transducer. Fantastic. Shall we get cracking? Yeah, let's <laughs> go. So what we need to do, first of all, is you need to get onto the couch and you need to lie on your left side. But what that does is brings your heart closer to the front of your chest wall, mm-hmm. so there's less distance for the ultrasound to travel, so it should produce a better image on the screen quite comfy actually <laughs> so i'm going to put three stickers on you know to monitor your heart rate while we do the scan okay so these are sort of like circular plasters with little metal clips on yeah we call them electrodes and these wires you're clipping to me they're gonna monitor the the electric signal of my heartbeat yeah can you see this line here this is your heart rate going along the screen so it gives us a number 87 beats a minute and each time you see this complex, that's every time the heart beats, you'll see one of those. Is 86 normal? <laughs> yeah, so normal sinus rhythm is between 60 and 100. Right. So within that range is what we'd expect. Awesome. Good to know. Okay, and this is the ultrasound probe, which I'm going to put on your chest. Um, it's not too big. Mm-hmm. I'm put some jelly on this bit here, which is the imaging footprint, and then that will go onto your chest. Almost like a, like a circular probe with like a flat bit on the end that I assume is going to be the bit that's going to be sort of rubbed around. And this is jelly, right? which is what you'd also use on a baby scan. It just gives us a better picture because ultrasound doesn't travel through air. So we need to get rid of any air in between the probe and your skin. Okay, it's a bit cold. Yep. This is where we start the scan. And we have the image on the screen here. Oh, wow. So that's literally my heart. Yeah. That's amazing. My name is Rick Steeds, I'm a consultant cardiologist, I'm particularly interested in cardiovascular imaging and I'm the current president of the British Society of Echocardiography. We're looking at images on the screen here from the, the echo sound that I've just had done of my heart, so could you tell us a little bit more about exactly what it is I'm looking at? Okay, it's very, very good at showing the structure of the heart, um, how strong the muscle is, 
whether the valves work, whether they leak or whether they're narrowed, and whether there's damage to the heart, for example, from a heart attack. You'll be glad to know that this looks entirely normal. (laughs) That is very good to hear. Um, So, yeah, we we can see, I think, two chambers there, and there's a a valve sort of between them that is opening and closing with my heartbeat. Okay, so on the left-hand side of the screen, you see the two walls of the left ventricle. The main floppy thing in the middle is the mitral valve. And then to the right-hand side of the screen, you can see the left atrium. So blood comes back from the lungs into the left atrium, down the pulmonary veins, having picked up oxygen. It's passed into the main pumping chamber of the left ventricle. And then just above the mitral valve, you can see two leaflets of the aortic valve and then the start of the aorta. So then the oxygenated blood is pumped through the aortic valve, out of the aorta, and then it feeds your brain, heart, kidneys and everything else going with its oxygen. At the top of the screen, you can see a little bit of the right ventricle, which is the chamber that feeds deoxygenated blood back into the lungs. So that's where it picks up all its nutrients and then back into the heart. So this is, this is a great picture of the engine of your, of your body. But I still can't believe I was seeing my own heart beating in front of me. Dr Rick Steed's there, and before him, Claire Ward-Jones from Phillips. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Tom Crawford. And we're bringing you the top stories from the British Cardiovascular Society meeting that's just been happening in Manchester. Coming up, we'll find out how the heart copes with being in space, and I try my hand at putting a probe into an artery. But before that, up into the air. Fighter pilots shoot across the sky at supersonic speeds and this means they're subjected to extreme G-forces, such as when they need to turn a tight circle or rapidly change direction. So how do they handle it? I found two people who could help me out. Squad leader Gaz Kennedy. I work for the Royal Air Force Centre of Aviation Medicine and I'm uh, the officer commanding the Aviation Medicine flight. I'm Wing Commander Nick Green. I'm a Defence Consultant in Aviation Medicine. I joined the Air Force in 1990 and I also work at the Royal Air Force Centre of Aviation Medicine. Gaz, you're going to actually dress me up as a pilot. I don't look like Tom Cruise, not half as good looking as him, but you're going to give me some of the same gear. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) We're starting with a flying suit. This looks a bit like a boiler suit that you're putting me into. It's quite lightweight material. It's Nomex, so it's uh, flame resistant. It's uh, what Formula One drivers wear. Okay, I look like I'm going to do the decorating a bit. So zip that up. Next thing are some uh, anti-G trousers. These uh, will give you protection against pulling G. Basically, they're a pair of inflatable trousers that connect to the aircraft engine bleed system. Right, OK, so you're putting a sort of belt round my waist. This is already very heavy, Gaz. <laughs> uh, yeah, but you get used to it. <laughs> OK, so there's a belt going round my waist, and it looks like... I look a bit like a cowboy, actually, with those sort of leathers they used to wear down the, down the outsides chaps. of their... The chaps, yeah, absolutely. There's a hole in the front of it where my knee goes on each side. That's to enable me to bend my legs, presumably. That's right. And on, on the thighs, there are two white plastic rectangles there for writing information down on. So now you're just reaching between my legs and sort of they zip up down the inside of, of each leg. That's right. Uh, yeah, so they, they're a tight fit. Normally, you'd have these put on. They'd be specifically your size. And then we'd have some safety equipment fitters would tighten up some strings at the back of the trousers and pull them really... So they're very tight-fitting. So there's almost like a Victorian corset. There's a tube emerging at sort of waist height out of these trousers. What's that? Yeah, that tube's connected to the uh, aircraft uh, bleed air system that comes from the engine. There's a spring-loaded uh, system there, and every time you pull more than about 3G, uh, that opens a valve, air comes into trousers, inflate the trousers, 
and that stops the blood from pooling in your legs to prevent you from going unconscious. Goodness, it's amazing that you're actually connected to the, the jet engine. Right, what are you giving me now? This is a life jacket, which we wear basically every time we go flying, because as well as giving you support over the water, it also um, contains all your survival aids as well, such as a beacon to locate you, there's flares, there's a heliograph mirror, first aid kits, spare water, so quite a lot of stuff carrying around with you. OK, and I'm now fit to fly? Almost. There's a helmet to go on yet. OK, got the helmet and, and some gloves, of course. I can't, I can't possibly take to the air without, without my gloves. Just get the helmet on. OK, so uh, the oxygen mask on. You won't be able to speak now, but still be able to breathe. And uh, you've got a visor as well that you can put down that we fly with all the time in case we get a bird strike through the front of the aircraft. And also it gives you protection against the sun as well. Now, Nick, why am I wearing all of this? Exposure to high G-force runs a risk for pilots of uh, loss of consciousness, which we call G-lock or G-induced loss of consciousness. And that's really because of the effect that the G-force has on your blood. Under increased G, the weight of your blood is effectively increased. And as it gets heavier, it has a couple of uh, effects. One of them is to cause the blood to pool in the lower limbs. And the other is to reduce the amount of blood pressure at head level. Basically, anything above heart level, uh, we see a reduction in blood pressure, and anything below heart level, we see an increase in blood pressure due to the increased hydrostatic gradient caused by the G-force. So as the Gs make the blood heavier and, and effectively fling the blood into my legs, there's less blood coming back up to my heart, so my heart's got less to pump out into my head, and it's facing a, a bigger upward struggle to get it into my brain. So my brain basically suffers a lack of oxygen for a while. Exactly. And it's all about actually the delivery of oxygen to the brain. So we're not that interested in in the blood pressure by itself. What we're really interested in is the flow of blood carrying that vital oxygen to keep you conscious. And round about four seconds after the oxygen delivery has stopped, you lose consciousness. Now, Gaz, you've flown some of the most powerful aircraft that the RAF has. Say you're going to pull a very high load of G... What do you do personally to make sure that you don't pass out? Okay, so uh, if you're aware of it, you can perform an anti-G straining manoeuvre, which is basically uh, muscle tensing just as the G is about to come on in your legs, buttocks, abdomen. Uh, You also take a deep breath. You then hold the breath for between three to four seconds, and then you exhale and inhale as rapidly as you can within about a second. You want to do probably two or three of those, and then you're at a level where you you can then judge um, grey out, which is a slight loss of vision, uh, and you can relax slightly until you start to grey out, and then you can retense to just to get rid of the grey out, the loss of vision. And Nick, why does that work, the, the muscle tensing in the legs and then the, the deep breath sequence? So the problem is all about not enough blood pressure, and all of these manoeuvres are designed to increase blood pressure. The leg tensing actually has two effects. It acts on the arterial system, it squeezes the arteries, and particularly the smaller vessels, the arterioles, which increases the peripheral resistance. And it's actually the peripheral resistance that's the main determinant of your circulation's blood pressure. So if you can squeeze those vessels, make them narrow, pressure goes up, uh, and that's what we want. The other convenient benefit of squeezing your legs is blood tends to pool in the veins. They're floppy elastic vessels, and if you squeeze your muscles hard, you can actually empty that blood out of the veins, back up into the chest, and then it can be pumped um, upwards to the, uh, to the heart and to the brain. What is Gaz talking about when he mentions grey-out? Grey-out is, uh, is an interesting phenomenon, useful for pilots, because it gives them warning that there is a loss of consciousness impending. And the reason that you get grey-out is through a failure of blood supply to the retina. 
the globe of the eye is actually pressurised just to keep the eye in the right shape. But what that means is you need an extra 10 or 20 millimetres of mercury of blood pressure to perfuse the retina rather than to fuse the brain. And in practical terms, if your blood pressure is falling, your eye stops working before your brain does. The first time you were doing all this, Gaz, did, did you just sort of take to it like a duck to water? Are there people who just to whom this comes naturally? Or have you had to learn this and train yourself to become resistant to these effects? There are some people whose anatomy is uh, makes more resistant to G, so short squat people. Uh, I'm not suggesting that I'm quite uh, moulded in that manner. Um, but tall, thin people usually have more difficulty pulling G than uh, shorter, squatter people. And have you ever passed out? No, but I've flown with quite a few people who have, but it's nothing to do with my bad flying. <laughs> That's why we do the training and why it's in a training environment, because they could go off and do them by themselves next time. So at least we've discovered that nice and early and realise that they have to then work on their anti-G strain manoeuvre. And when people pass out like this, Nick, how long do they stay unconscious for? Well, in a study done by the uh, Americans when they went back and looked at their video records from centuries training, they found it was round about 10 seconds on average, although that did include the time to stop the centrifuge. So in the aircraft, it may be a little bit quicker than that, that you would wake up. But the problem with G-lock is once you've woken up, there's a period of around about 30 seconds where you're dazed and confused. You can't necessarily operate the aircraft. One pilot told me when he was waking up, he looked ahead of him and saw a load of alarm clocks and thought, gosh... Uh, why did I set all those alarm clocks in front of me and then suddenly realised actually it was the aircraft instruments and he was in an aircraft travelling 500 miles an hour and needed to do something about it? So the confusion is a really important and yet dangerous part of the experience. Well, I guess that's what they mean when they say you should keep your eye on the clock. Thank you very much to squadron leader Gaz Kennedy and wing commander Nick Green. But it's not just RAF pilots who need to train. Doctors also need to practice for years to get good at performing often very tricky procedures. But rather than make mistakes on real patients, modern technology means it's now possible to rehearse complicated procedures using simulators first. And it can be very realistic and very stressful, as I found out when Gareth Wills from Vascular Perspectives got me threading a tube into a pretend coronary artery, one of the blood vessels that can become blocked and cause a heart attack. So what we're going to do in a couple of minutes is um, insert uh, an 035 wire into the radial artery. It's called an 035 wire because it's 35 thousandths of an inch in diameter. Um, The radial artery is in the wrist. And what we'll do is we'll push this wire, which has got a very soft tip, up the radial artery to the the forearm, which where it joins to the, the brachial artery in the elbow up to the top of the shoulder and across the top of the chest where you have the the brachial cephalic artery and then down the descending aorta which is where it joins to the heart at the aortic root from that we'll then push a catheter which is essentially just a tube that joins the outside world to the inside world and push that over the wire all the way around to the heart and then we connect um, a radio opaque die to the end uh, at the wrist using this radio opaque die we can inject that into the heart and look at it under live x-ray and see the the coronary arteries and your wire Ooh. is in the arm oh I, I i can see it inside the arm <laughs> so this is this is the forearm here so if yeah. you start pushing that forward you'll see it travel up the elbow it goes very quickly so oh nice it does wow oh, okay you're up to the shoulder now yeah that is so there's there's a huge difference there between how hard i was pushing it initially mm-hmm. it's in oh the god right place, i, I so can see, i can see the heart on the screen yeah, beaten which is a good sign yeah so it's a case of of using this this wire and the the catheter the tube to put this die on the heart so that then when you do an x-ray you can see the heart because of course when you do an x-ray normally you just see bones is that is that correct exactly yeah so x-ray only picks up hard tissue so not soft tissue so you're exactly right you you can see bones you can see a faint outline of muscle but 
what we want to see is the vessels that supply the blood to the muscles. So we use the blood vessels as a conduit to inject the radiopaque dye. So the patients who will be getting this procedure done generally have angina, which is chest pain, either at rest or after exertion. If they have chest pain, it's usually because they have a narrowing in one of these coronary arteries. And the coronary artery feeds the blood to the, the cardiac muscle. So if you have chest pain, it's because your heart isn't getting enough blood to the cardiac muscle. So what we do is in, put this catheter in, inject the dye, and look for the narrowing. Okay, so now what you need to do is manipulate the catheter to get into this little hole here. Oh, God. Okay. So <laughs> It's like a game. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so can I put the syringe down? You can. Yeah. Right, okay. You can relax as well, man. I know, but like, I'm, it's... <laughs> it just... I don't know, it's, it's intense. Yeah. It's intense. Okay. As you say, in the past... Uh, doctors would train on live patients they would learn at the right hand side of uh, an experienced consultant generally just by watching and then they would go through the the whole see one do one teach one but nowadays you've got systems like the mentis where there is zero risk to a patient and this is live or real um, patient data so learning with a zero risk strategy seems to make much more sense the problem is doctors generally don't have a lot of time to do simulation on top of everything else that they do. Uh, so that's where we try and help out at conferences like BCS where we can offer training like this um, in a, an enclosed environment where the doctors have time to do this. But generally we feel that simulation is obviously the, the safest, lowest risk way of learning the, uh, the way to do a proper coronary angiography. I know you were telling me to chill out, but like it, it felt real, which is good, right? Because you're trying to Absolutely. recreate the real world environment that mm-hmm. the, the the cardiologist could you know could be in. It's called immersive simulation, so yeah. as close to real life as possible. Yeah, no, that was I'm, I'm terrified. <laughs> You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Tom Crawford. And we're bringing you the top stories from the British Cardiovascular Society meeting that's just been happening in Manchester. But first, to the underwater world. We focus so far on the hearts of humans and how they adapt to extreme conditions such as intense exercise and G-force. But what about the hearts of animals? University of Queensland zoologist Craig Franklin studies saltwater crocodiles the Earth's largest living reptiles and owners of the most complex heart in the animal kingdom. Crocodiles are mostly aquatic. They spend the majority of their life in river systems or sometimes out in the ocean. And they are divers. They can spend periods of time underwater. They can actually capture food underwater, like fish. But they can also remain submerged at the water's edge and ambush prey that come down to drink. Our recent research has showed that they can spend many hours on a single lungful of air. And the record is around about seven hours. It's a long, old time, isn't it? How do you think they're doing that? The key to diving is how to manage oxygen. So for the crocodiles, we think it's a large part of it is their cardiovascular system. And that their heart is, I think, the, the most sophisticated and most complex heart in the animal kingdom quite surprising given they're quite ancient beings aren't they they've been around for hundreds of millions of years yeah so um, we can track back to the jurassic and uh, protosuchus is what's regarded as the first uh, crocodilian and we can jump forward in time to 100 million years and uh, in queensland australia a discovery was made of 
crocodile that essentially is what we have today in shape and, and, and appearance. So they're clearly well adapted and very successful. So when you look inside one, what is the anatomy that you think gives them this ability? Imagine a four-chambered heart, just like a human heart, two atria, two ventricles. Blood returns from the body, deoxygenated, and it enters the right atrium. It then gets ejected into the right ventricle, and as that ventricle contracts, it ejects that blood to the lungs. So far, that's just like you and me. Just like you and me. That blood then returns to the left atrium and to the left ventricle, and then it's ejected out to the body, so to the head and to the limbs. That's still just like you and me. Exactly, just like you and me. But this is when it gets a wee bit more complicated. Now, if we just focus on the right side of the heart, that side of the heart typically ejects blood to the lungs through the pulmonary arteries. But in the crocodile, there's an extra vessel. It's called the left aorta, and that vessel allows blood to be pumped to the body. So the right ventricle almost has a, has a choice. It can either send blood to the lungs or it can send blood to the body. Why would that help? Well, our hypothesis is that if the crocodile can control the amount of blood that goes to the lungs and perhaps limit it and just re-divert it to the body, it can save the oxygen in the lungs. So, so it kind of meters the amount of blood that goes to the lungs, a wee bit like uh, a reservoir, a scuba tank in the crocodiles that it can use from time to time. Your theory would be then that the crocodile is going to dive so it gets a lung full of air, then submerges, and then periodically diverts the blood instead of around its body through the lungs, grabs a bit of that oxygen shoves that oxygenated blood around the body for a while until it needs another taste of oxygen and then it opens and closes this, this yep. choice in the, the right side of the heart. Is that borne out by observation, though? Do we, do we know that crocodiles do go down with a big lung full, lung full of air? Because diving mammals like whales classically and characteristically breathe out before they submerge. There's been experimental studies to show that crocodiles will go down with a lung full of air and use that as a, as a key source of oxygen. But really the, the trick to this, this heart and this flow pattern is how that blood can either go to the lungs or to the body. And what we've discovered is a very special type of valve that sits at the base of the vessel that goes to the lungs. And we call it cog teeth because it looks like cog teeth or two sets of knuckles that, that come together. And what we've shown is that when it does close it diverts the blood to the body. But have you been able to go in and look at an awake behaving crocodile in order to see if what you think is happening is true? Because these are not small animals. It's not like a lab mouse to study. It's pretty challenging. No, I mean, we have. I mean, the, the great thing these days is that, you know, physiologists like myself used to bring the animal into the lab Now we take the lab to the animal, and this is um, the field of telemetry, where where things like physiological devices have been miniaturised to such an extent that you can implant them in animals and you can actually measure their physiology while they're just going about their daily business. 
So, so, so you've done that. You, you've got yeah. devices you're you're implanting in crocodiles to measure these these heart functions. Yes. Yeah, so we've we've implanted a number of animals, and we've been recording flows and pressures. And there is evidence to say that during diving, they do divert blood away from the lungs, um, back into the body. It's ingenious, isn't it? One quick question I can't resist, though. How on earth do you get the croc to cooperate with the implantation of the device? <laughs> Carefully. We, 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 you know, <laughs> of, of importance to us is the welfare of the animal. You know, the, the whole thing is that we want to observe natural behaviours. And so we look after the animal and uh, we make sure that it, there's little impact and that way we, c- we can record these natural behaviours. So how do you catch them? Yeah, catching's easy. <laughs> catching's reasonably easy if you have a very experienced team. And I've been very lucky in that um, uh, Australia Zoo, um, uh, Steve Irwin uh, originally and Terry Irwin now, uh, provides uh, the capacity, the capability to, to capture these animals and for us to put tracking devices on them. I'm more than happy to leave the crocodile hunting to the professionals. That was Craig Franklin. And now we go from one extreme to the other as we leave the underwater realm and travel into outer space. Three, two, one, zero, zero, and liftoff! Liftoff. Getting objects like satellites into orbits relatively easy these days, but living things can be a different matter. For instance, what happens to the hearts and blood vessels of the people who go there? That's what University of Texas researcher Ben Levine has devoted his career to finding out turns out that it was one of the big surprises in the early space years, that when astronauts came back down to Earth and tried to stand up, they couldn't. They'd faint. It's important because many people faint on Earth. In fact, one or two percent of all emergency room visits are because of fainting. So understanding what the effect of gravity is on fainting was really important clinically on Earth and very important for the astronauts. And as we've extended the human presence in space onto the International Space Station, we become more interested in long-duration spaceflight. And that's important as you think about what the future of space medicine or really space science is. The ultimate goal is to get to Mars. That's a long trip. And so understanding what happens to the human body over long-duration spaceflight has been our focus for the past 10 years or so. What have you learned? So there are many things that cause fainting. The most common is what we call neurally mediated fainting. That's fainting that happens when someone stands up and gravity sucks blood into your feet. And so you have to constrict the blood vessels. Think about it like putting your thumb over the edge of a hose to squirt the blood back up to your head. And then you also have to speed the heart rate. If you want to pump more, you just got to pump it faster. And it turns out that there are sensors located just at the base of your brain, which tells your body, oh, no, not enough blood getting to the brain. Let's speed up the heart, constrict those blood vessels, and deal with all that blood. Now, sometimes the body's just overwhelmed. And we see that, for example, in a soldier who's very hot and tries to stand at attention or someone who's become compromised because they've lost a lot of blood. Even the best of reflexes can't handle that. But that doesn't explain what's going on in the astronaut, because they ought to have a normal volume of blood, shouldn't they? So why should, when they stand up, they get this drop? Well, that's a wonderful question. And in fact, nobody faints in space, just like nobody faints when they're lying down in bed, except under unusual circumstances. 
But when astronauts go into space, all the blood that's normally in the lower part of our body rushes up into the chest. It's so dramatic, the astronauts call that the puffy face bird leg syndrome. The legs get skinny and the face gets puffy. But just like you and I, when you lie down at night, the body doesn't like all that fluid in the upper body, so it gets rid of it. That's why the first thing you have to do when you get up in the morning is go to the toilet, right? You get rid of that fluid. So you've shunted a lot of fluid centrally. This is detected and the body interprets that as, I must have too much fluid, so it throws it away. And the astronauts don't have too much fluid, but the body thinks they do. They throw the excess away, so they've actually got too little circulating volume. Right. Now, it's enough circulating volume in space. It only becomes too little when they stand up on Earth, as if they've lost a pint or two pints of blood. So you put the volume back into your astronaut back on Earth. They've got the right level of blood now, but does the symptom resolve? After the volume has been restored, they quickly return back to normal function. The most frequent time that an astronaut might faint is when they first come down. And by two or three days afterwards, most of that is back to normal. For longer duration flight, it may be more severe, and that's because the heart actually gets smaller. We call it the couch potato's heart. If you don't do anything to prevent this from happening, the heart will shrink its muscle mass by about 1% a week. We often see pictures sent down from space of astronauts exercising religiously. If you put them on an exercise regime, can you prevent those losses? Fortunately, you can, and the astronauts do a pretty good job. Most of them may exercise up to two hours a day in space, primarily to protect their bones and their skeletal muscle, But exercise works for all the body, and it protects the heart as well. And there's much less fainting now than there was in the early days of the space program. What about things like heart disease? We know that when we expose people to doses of radiation for things like cancer treatment, it does have a bad effect on blood vessels. There is more radiation exposure from cosmic rays in space. Does does that accelerate the risk of heart disease? Well, that's one of our biggest concerns. Once you're outside the protective effect of the Earth's atmosphere, the radiation exposure is quite dramatic, particularly with solar flares and solar events. It can be extraordinary, and we worry about accelerating atherosclerosis. Right now, the best that we can do is to identify those individuals at highest risk and try to avoid flying them. So we've introduced coronary calcium scanning. Now, coronary calcium is a, is a way of measuring the footprint of atherosclerosis in the blood vessels. You take a CAT scan and you measure the amount of calcium which signifies that the atherosclerotic process has progressed. So most of the astronauts have a, right now have a coronary calcium score of zero. There are some legacy astronauts, though, who have been in the program before this election who have a fair amount of atherosclerosis. So figuring out ways to protect them from radiation as they go outside the Van Allen belts will be critical because they're middle-aged men and women. And what is it that kills middle-aged men and women? It's cardiovascular disease. A lot of the prediction algorithms we have for when you go to your GP and they measure your blood pressure, they take your cholesterol level, they're good for older people. They always say they're notoriously noisy and bad for younger people. So how good is your NASA algorithm for looking at my coronary arteries and giving me a risk at my age, early 40s, of my risk of having a heart attack? 
Well, that's a great question. You know, we were unhappy with the quality of the algorithms and that they weren't very good at identifying risk in younger people. So we've combined data from three major databases, some of which include a focus more on younger people, to look and to see how much better can we do if we include coronary calcium, and we do a lot better. Really? So could this be extrapolated into wider clinical care then? So we can start using a measure made for astronauts down here on Earth? I certainly hope so. We need to get it accepted by the wider clinical audience and published in the medical literature. And then I hope that uh, we'll have an algorithm and an app that people can use in their GP's office. A wonderful example of how investment in the space race has a spin-off benefit for those of us down here on Earth. I was talking with Ben Levine from the University of Texas. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Tom Crawford. And still to come, how much exercise do we really need to be healthy? But first, sticking with the technology keeping our tickers in top shape, Chris tracked down Michelle Williams, a member of the team at Edinburgh University that have just won the British Medical Journal Imaging Team of the Year Award for their work on a project called the Scott Heart Study, which could cut heart attack deaths by half in certain groups of patients. So we've been doing CT scans, so that's a non-invasive type of scan where you go into a donut-shaped scanner, lie on your back, and we inject some contrast, some dye, to light up the blood vessels around the heart in order to look for any narrowings or any plaque in those blood vessels that might be causing symptoms of heart disease or put people at risk of having a heart attack in the future. So we recruited 4,000 people throughout Scotland. Half had CT scans and half didn't. And we followed them up to see what happened to them. And we showed that the group that had the CT scans and the results of the changes in treatment based on the information from those CT scans had half as many heart attacks or death due to heart attacks than the other group. So that's a really big difference between the two groups of people. Yes, indeed, you can be very proud. What were these CT scans showing you? that enabled the cardiologist to then make changes to the way those patients were handled to get that dramatic reduction in heart attack risk? So the CT scans showing us narrowings in the blood vessels in the heart. And previously, in order to identify these things, we had to do a test involving a wire being put into a blood vessel in the wrist, fed in towards the heart, and then dye injected around the heart. Whereas a CT scan doesn't involve any of that. There's a small drip, a venflon in the arm, and then we can use that to put some dye and get the CT pictures, which are kind of like X-ray pictures in a three-dimensional way so that we can see the whole of the heart and all of the blood vessels. And so the Scott Heart study looked at narrowings in the blood vessels and what that told us about um, what happened later on to the patients. But we're now realising we can actually get even more information from the CT scan rather than just about the narrowings because the CT scan can show us the actual plaque itself that's causing the narrowings. And there's different types of plaque and some are more high risk and Potentially, people with these higher-risk plaques might need different treatments or better treatment. And that's what we're going to on to look at next, to see if we can identify the highest-risk people to make sure they get the best treatment. How do the plaques differ? So CT scans use X-rays, and that tells us about the density of a material. And we can use that to identify very dense areas that might have calcium in it, or very low-density areas that might have fat or dead cells or um, lots of inflammation in them. And that can tell us a bit more about actually what's going on in the wall of the blood vessel rather than just 
what narrowing it's causing. And so now you're beginning to ask, right, so if we look at enough people and we've got enough of these different types of plaques, we can see which ones are likely to be the high-risk ones, which are the lower-risk ones, and that gives us even more information about who we need to treat. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's our current theory, and that's what we're going to be working on next. So I'm very excited about finding out what that shows. Is this cost-effective, though, Michelle? Because that's a big group of people to be scanning. So what fraction of them might you be able to save from having a heart attack at all and therefore what's the cost of of scanning that huge number of people so the beauty of the ct scan is that of all of the tests that we do to look at the heart it's one of the cheapest so if it can give us lots of information then that's a really good one to go for rather than the more expensive or the fancier tests it's also one with very few side effects it's a low radiation dose test many people can have it particularly if they can't go into other different types of scanners for a variety of reasons and in our study we showed that we have the rates of having a heart attack or dying from having a heart attack and that really is a, a big difference so we'll increasingly see this coming into more and more guidelines and the number of CT scans we're going to do is going to go up we are going to need more CT scans more people that can look at the CT scans and more people that can do the CT scans and that's going to be a challenge but it's not going to be an impossible one because it is going to make a big difference and what's been the reception to your findings and you getting this award are people embracing this are they going for it not just in the UK but internationally australia us so on so the reception's been absolutely fantastic in the uk it's already changed national guidelines in the rest of the world they're very excited about it as well particularly in america at the same time as we did our study there was an american study called promise that was going on at the same time and the combination of these two studies have shown us really interesting and important things about this population so around the world it's been um, the recipient of quite a number of awards so far and it's only just getting started i think I'm very well done and warm congratulations to Michelle Williams and her colleagues for that fantastic discovery. So far, we've looked extensively at the extreme demands we can place upon our hearts and we've heard how technology is helping us to stay healthier for longer. But what we've not yet discussed is perhaps the most powerful and effective therapy of all, exercise. Back to Sanjay Sharma. People who exercise are less likely to be obese, less likely to have diabetes, they're more likely to have a good blood pressure and lipid profile And by controlling all of these acquired risk factors for atherosclerosis, people who exercise moderately reduce the risk of an adverse event from a coronary event by about 50% when they hit their fifth and sixth decade. They live around three to seven years longer than people who don't exercise. They are less likely to get cancer of the prostate, the breast, the uterus and the colon, less likely to be depressed and less likely to develop dementia. And therefore, if you're going to bottle exercise into some sort of pharmacological pill. It would be considered as the miracle pill, something that is free of charge, that can be taken at any time, that's devoid of side effects, that will reduce consultations with the general practitioner, outpatient clinics, and reduce bed occupancy. And therefore, I believe that every physician in this country should be performing, or certainly prescribing, shall I say, some form of exercise to every single patient. It's quite challenging, though. When, when someone says you should take more exercise, it's quite hard to quantify what constitutes therapy for that particular person because it's clear that taking some exercise, from what you're saying, some exercise has got to be better than no exercise. But is a brisk walk as good as going jogging? A good point. Again, our chief medical officer recommends that we perform 30 minutes 
of moderate exercise five times a week. Now, that's a brisk walk or a gentle jog at a 15-minute uh, mile pace. Clearly, that data bears fruit, and that has been shown. Uh, but there is also data that if you do a little bit less than that, that you will do better than someone who does nothing. But the question is, what is the actual ideal dose to prevent things like diabetes and heart attacks and stroke? Now, some of the studies that have been published, these are large meta-analyses, you know, involving thousands and thousands of patients, have shown that to get the best benefit, you probably have to do five times the current recommended limit. Now, clearly not everybody can do that. We've got people who've got musculoskeletal problems, uh, problems with their hearts and their lungs. That are, they're just not capable of doing that sort of exercise. So the good news for those individuals is that some exercise is certainly better than none. But for those individuals who are able and can exercise, I do not think that just 30 minutes five times a week is enough. They should be trying to do a little bit more than that. And there's no risk if a person does take up exercise. They're not putting themselves at increased risk through exercising. Because there are some people who say, oh, don't overdo it. You don't want to give yourself a heart attack through sudden, unaccustomed, severe exercise. Another good point. Um, there is one thing being an accustomed exerciser, someone who's actually run most of their lives or jogged most of their lives or been a very active individual. And there's another thing where someone has actually looked in the mirror in their fifth decade and noticed that their belly is bulging over their belt and decides, oh, my God, I need to go to the gym and I am going to start on day one and go on the treadmill and run at an eight eight-minute mile pace. I don't think that's a very good idea. I think in those people, they need to ask themselves three questions. The first question is, do I experience chest pain? Am I more breathless than my peers when I walk with them? Have I got a family history of premature cardiovascular disease? Um, and do I have obvious risk factors? Am I a smoker? Have I got high blood pressure? Am I taking tablets for hypercholesterolemia? I think if you're doing all of that, then I would certainly exercise cautiously, gently, to the point that you can hold a conversation but are unable to sink. That would be a good point. And I think if you're going to plan to do any more than that, I do believe that it's probably worth seeing uh, a specialist to make sure that it's safe to do so. But you can't use not being able to sing in the first place as a valid excuse for not exercising. Thanks to Sanjay Sharma and thanks to all our other guests this week. Amanda Varnava, Rick Steeds, Claire Ward-Jones, Gaz Kennedy, Nick Green, Gareth Wills, Craig Franklin, Ben Levine and Michelle Williams. Well, that is it for this week. A huge thank you to the British Heart Foundation for inviting us along and thank you to everyone who spoke to us. There was more we wanted to include. We didn't have time in this programme, but keep an eye on our website where we'll be publishing more special editions from the British Cardiovascular Society meeting. That's at nakedscientist.com forward slash specials. Do join us at the same time next week when we'll be asking whether we really can trust a robot. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the STFC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. 
the nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.